Amen. God is good. Like Pastor said, he's good all the time. We, well, I'll I'll just go ahead and self-identify. I came in probably halfway through the first song, but I remember hearing the the words of the first song, and towards the end of the chorus, it's a cry to be made whole from God. And if you remember the chorus of the first song that y'all sang, or at least the first one that I heard this morning as I came in, <laughs> there is this, this call, this, this cry, and I think it's really intrinsic within each of us that we're asking for God to make us whole in everything, in every part of our lives, and it's not inappropriate to sing those words and really connect with them and ask Him for wholeness, wholeness in our, in our being, wholeness in our in our physical bodies, wholeness in our mental state, wholeness in our spiritual state. And to know that when we ask Him for those things, He's ready, willing, and able to pour out upon us that wholeness and that healing. Amen? Because we serve a faithful God. And like I said, I'm just going to self-identify this morning. I did indeed come in late today. This is not the usual for us. In fact, we're normally at music practice, so truth is, I don't really know how to come to church on time. We're usually here a couple of hours early. But I would blame it on the time change, only that we fell back instead of spring forward, so I don't really have an alibi there either. Amen. I'm thankful to have the opportunity to, to come and minister here at the pulpit. I don't normally... Um, spend a lot of time in acknowledgments before preaching, but I do feel it is appropriate to to express thanks and appreciation for this opportunity because it's not a given. Ministry isn't something that's it's just it's not a a career pathway in the in the way that a secular job would be. Rather, it's an opportunity and it's. And moving into a place of ministry, really, it's more, it's a step of obedience. Because as God is calling us to follow Him, He's calling us to get out of ourselves and to move into places where we begin to minister one to another. And that's not necessarily always over the pulpit. In fact, it's very rarely over the pulpit when you consider all of the ways God has the body minister to itself. And so it's a privilege this morning, and it's an honor And I thank Pastor, again, I have thanked him before for his leadership, but I feel like publicly stating it this morning, since October just ended and it was Pastor Appreciation Month, um, the way that you, church, and this pastoral family has just poured into my wife and myself, we've been blessed to be here. And I don't know why I'm saying these things, perhaps it's because our time here is drawing to a close, Um, not to alarm anybody, but... I suppose that's something it's also appropriate to start saying more and more publicly as our time does draw to a close. But if you would stand with me and turn to John chapter 21. We're going to read verses 19 through 22. John chapter 21, verse 19 through 22. Starting in verse 19, about halfway through the verse, it says, And when... He had spoken this, he said unto him, follow me. And then Peter, turning about, seeing the disciple who Jesus loved, following the same disciple who leaned on him and 
asked him at supper, which is it that betrayed you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what shall this man do? Peter's asking after the other beloved disciple, Lord, what shall this man do? And Jesus, again, he says to him, if I will that he tarries until I come, what is it to thee? Follow thou me. Amen. Another version of this is the English standard. It says, in Jesus' last words here, it says, If it's my will that he remains until I come, what is it to you, Peter? I'm adding that word in myself. It says, you follow me. Amen. Let's pray once more over this. Jesus, I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity, for the calling, for the beckoning to follow you, Jesus. Because I know that when I follow you, that you have good things in store for my life. I know that your intentions for me, Lord, are true and they're righteous and that you'll take me down paths that I would not have otherwise found without you. So Jesus, this morning we seek to follow you and I ask that you help us do that very thing. Amen. You may be seated. As I said, so much for the time change this morning. My faithful companion woke me up this morning, just before 3 a.m., and I'm not referring to my wife right now, my other faithful companion. As he commonly does, he decides around that time of the morning, usually, that he needs to empty his little 10-pound Pomeranian-sized bladder, and he did so by somehow patiently yet intrusively loitering around the area of my pillow, quite near in proximity to my face. And as I tried my best to ignore him, hoping, hoping that, that he would make the decision to just hold it and go back to sleep, he began to ever so gently prod me with the tip of his tiny, cold, wet nose. And so, like many nights... Before I crawled out of my warm bed, I made the journey downstairs. I led him through the doorway into the backyard. I waited 45 to 60 seconds, as is custom. And I received him as he returned triumphantly from his mission accomplished, (laughs) expecting a treat for his endeavors. He's trained that way. When we potty trained our animals, we made the mistake of every time they did a good potty, we gave them a treat. So it's an expectation now at 3 (laughs) a.m. Nonetheless, I returned to my bedroom and I crawled back under the covers. And the difference between many times before and last night was that unlike many nights before, I did not fall asleep again like I normally would. So much for the extra hour. And the night went on and it felt like forever because... One turned into two, of course, and two turned into two, strangely enough, and two turned into three. And as I lay there in the early hours of this morning, I found myself, really, I found myself meditating on the Lord. And I began to consider what I knew to be the word that was prepared for this morning. And in doing so, a flood of thoughts and ideas began to race across my mind and In that moment, instead of reaching for a pen and a notepad, I 
I really, I just felt distinctly called to lay there and remain where I was. And just listen, if you will. Allow the Lord to speak to me in that moment. And so I did. I laid still. Eventually, my wife woke up and realized I was awake. And the morning went on. But, but in that moment, I laid still. Because I knew that it was for me to allow the Word to get into my heart and become a part of me. And certainly, there would be an opportunity for me later to <laughs> change everything in my notes this morning. But in that moment, it was for me to lay there and listen. And so I did. I soon understood that if I expect to see people transformed before my eyes, I must first be willing to be still and allow that transformation process to come upon myself. As he says in his word, be still and know that I am God. And I would add to that, in the stillness of knowing, hear the call of God as he beckons you and he says, follow me. Those words, follow me, they can be found escaping the mouth of Jesus over and over and over again throughout the writings of the four Gospels. There's significance when you find a repeating theme, a repeating story, a repeating command, when there's, when there's repetition found in the Scripture we are to take pause and notice when the Word of God, it reinforces itself, it validates itself, it agrees with itself, it concurs, it repeats itself. And we take notice when that happens. Does anyone remember studying high school English? I remember. When you studied high school English, you learned how to read a text, and you learned how to expose the various literary devices that an author would use to convey his message, his meaning, and his purpose, to convey the effects of what he wants you to hear. And so, when we read this word, we must understand that, yes, it is the divinely inspired word of God, but it's not void of theme, it's not void of genre, it's not void of mood. When you consume this word, you're not going to find an empty, boring tech manual or some doctrinal dissertation. No, you're going to find poetic prose from the mouth of the psalmist as he writes about the love of God. You're going to find instruction from the pen of Paul as he writes his epistles. You're going to find a historical narrative of what really happened in the early church when you flip through the pages of the book of Acts. You're going to find rich dialogue that exposes the heart of God as you read through the Gospels. This book, it's full of life. It's full of intentional devices that are placed there to help us understand God's meaning and His intent. And so one such literary device you might remember from English class is known as alliteration. And the definition of this is the commencing of two or more words in close connection with the same letter or sound. And otherwise... It's repetition for effect. For example, I have stood still and stopped the sound of feet. Robert Frost. Or, once upon a midnight dreary while I pondered weak and weary. Edgar Allan Poe, for any of you hard poetic readers. Jaguar, advertisement, don't dream it, drive it. Repetition, don't dream, drive D, D, and D. And does anybody remember America Online? Welcome to the World Wide Wow. 
repetition for effect. It's effective. So no doubt, written repetition, it arrests the attention of the reader and the receiver of the spoken word. So it's no surprise that when we read the Gospels, we find Jesus repeating time and time again. He says, follow me, follow me, follow me. Jesus repeats it. In Matthew chapter 4, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Matthew chapter 8, follow me and let the dead bury the dead. Matthew chapter 16, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Mark chapter 2, he tells Levi, follow me. Luke chapter 18, sell all that you have, come, follow me. I'll go on. John chapter 10, when the sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. John 12, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. John 21, and when he had spoken this, he said unto him, follow me. Follow me. This invitation, this this beckoning, this call is extended from the hand of God to every creature made in His image. He has a desire that we might follow Him. And so the question, the obvious question, I suppose, that I would ask this morning is, why? Why? And it's not a question of why should I choose to follow Him. Not a question of why should you choose to make that choice for that would be elevating ourselves, elevating our humanity beyond what we really are. But the truth is we're imperfect, we're flawed, we're defective, deficient, we're damaged, we're lacking, we're inadequate, and he's the master. He's immeasurable. Do we know that he's the alpha and the omega? That he's the beginning and the end? Do we know that he's an unsearchable God and that he's perfect in all of his ways? And so this invitation is not really about us. It's not about you, and it's not about me, it's about Him. So the question why is not a question of why should I follow Him. It's not a question of my response, although He has graciously given us the freedom of choice. But this question I want to highlight this morning is more a question of why does the call even exist in the first place? Why has He invited me to follow him, me, me, in my imperfection, my sinful nature, you, same thing. We're human. We're born into a sinful state. It's humanity. So why us? Why? What could we possibly give a sovereign, perfect, righteous God? What could he possibly gain by drawing me to his side? What could he possibly get by beckoning me to follow him? What would I add to him? What value do I bring? Why would he invite me to follow him? Do you know that before you were formed in your mother's womb, God knew you? And this is some of the, the rich text that you'll find in the Bible, these words of love that God inspired that we might read and know who he is. It says that he knows the hairs on your head. He knows the plans that he has for you. Plans for welfare, not evil. Plans to give you a future and a hope. And so I would say that the reason he's asking me to follow him is simply because he loves me. He loves you. Because he wants to be with you and he wants you to be with him. He wants to reconcile you back to his side. He wants, he desires a relationship. And so he calls. He says, follow me. Follow me. 
If you look at your Bible, everyone who, if you have your Bible with you, I turn to the first page of Genesis, actually. Turn, turn there now, Genesis chapter 1. And this Bible that I'm carrying today, the first page of Genesis, spreads across exactly one sheet of paper front and back before I find chapter 2. So I've got this one page here. And likewise, if I turn to the last page of Revelation all the way to the end, it's the same thing. I've got one page which shows the last chapter of Revelation. So I've got one page at the beginning of this text and one page at the end of this text. And if you realize what Genesis chapter 1 represents and what the last chapter of Revelation represents, those are the only two places in the Bible where this scripture is free of sin. Before the fall, Genesis. After perfection. After the kingdom in Revelation. Everything else in between, all of this right here, it's all mired in humanity. It's all mired in sin. It's, there's transgression in here. There's stories of weakness. There's stories of doubt. Stories of a lack of faith. There's stories that describe your life and my life throughout this entire Scripture. If you will, this entire Scripture after the first page and before the last page, really, it's a journey. God has mapped a journey for us. The only portion of this Scripture that aren't mired in sin. The very beginning and the very end. Everything else is a journey. It's a transformation. Everything else is a story that shows us how we might be transformed by God. So know that you're God's desire. Know that you're His purpose. And if you'll allow it, know that you are God's righteousness. And when you look in the Scripture and you look at the very beginning, we find that God created Adam and Eve, he created man, he created the earth, he created light, he created everything. He spoke these things into existence. And as he did so, he, you could say his intention was that he would walk with his creation among the garden. He would walk with Adam and Eve. He, he, even after the fall, immediately after the fall, God called out to Adam and he said, where are you? And the scripture describes him as walking in the cool of the day. He's, he's, he's walking the garden because... Really, his heart's desire is to be connected, to be with Adam, be with his beloved creation. And so he created us to be in covenant with him. He created us to walk with him, to be literally in his presence. And what we did was we took that and we rejected it, if you will. We, we, you know the story of Adam and Eve, and we partook of the fruit, and we you know, gained the knowledge of good and evil. And in that moment, we tried to cover ourselves up and I, Brother Nolan, we were just having a conversation the other night. They got me thinking about this. And, and it's like mankind to try to take things and do things ourselves outside of the love of God, outside of his perfect plan. And, and that's illustrated perfectly. A moment after the fall, Adam and Eve, they attempted to cover up their own sin. They sewed fig leaves together. And they tried to do it themselves. But God, in his desire, he said, I want to reconcile you back to me. He walks in the garden and says, Adam, where are you? Adam, Adam, I want to be with you. Adam, come to me. Meanwhile, Adam hid behind a tree because he determined that he was now unworthy of God's presence. 
And so mankind fell from the garden. He fell from this covenant that God created us for. But God, he immediately launched a plan, as you know. And when you look throughout the scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation, we see God setting up his people, calling his chosen people. He calls out to Abraham. He says, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. He calls out to the children of Israel time and time again, and he sets them up in places where they're, they're set up to be a light to the world. He sets them in the middle of the corridor between the east and the west even so that they might share his light. They might share who he is. Really, Israel had a purpose. Israel had a plan. God placed them there for a reason that they might be that they might minister to the rest of the world. Do we believe that? Amen. And so God does that, but Israel time and time again we see them fall into sin, fall into idolatry, fall into idol worship and they continually reject the voice of God. This is mankind. This is us. This is what we do. <laughs> but God He's faithful, and he brings them again, and he's faithful, and he sets them up again all the way to the cross until Jesus decides this is how, this is my plan. Everything that he did in the Old Testament leads to what he does on the cross. And when he hung on the cross, he once again reconciled the world to himself. He once again reconciled you and me to him. He made a way that his blood would cover our sin and cover our transgression. He made himself the perfect sacrifice. It's not just a fable. It's not just a story. And when we sing about the blood of Jesus, there's meaning behind it. And what it means is that in the book, that in the book of life, we'll find our names recorded. And we'll find that our sin itself, our very sin, the record of our wrongdoings have been blotted out by his blood, by his sacrifice. Because there's always the requirement for sacrifice to blot out sin. We see it all the way through the Old Testament. When Jesus steps onto the scene, that requirement didn't just go away. He fulfilled it with himself, his only begotten son. So he goes on and he creates this way to reconcile the world back to himself. And he says, this is how I will do it. I'll send a comforter. I'll send my spirit. I'll send my whole toil here in this city until I send my spirit to fill you with the Holy Ghost, he says. And so the new disciples, the new disciples that Jesus has walked with, Jesus, he took them, he called them, he called them out of the fishing boat. He called them the artisans. He called the tax collectors. He called them to himself and he says, you are my disciples now. You are following me. I'm asking you to follow me and I'm going to teach you a better way so that you might share it with the world. And so these disciples, after Jesus finally ascends into heaven, they, they're left to their own devices, if you will. And, and they begin to tarry and they begin to wait for Jesus's comforter as he spoke. And it comes, and we see Acts 2.38, and we see the fire of the Holy Ghost fall and fill everybody, and we, we see the beginning, the birth of the new church, but what we find is that even in the birth of the new church, it, it, never, it failed to leave the walls of Jerusalem for some amount of time, and, and God continues to call them out of that place, and He continues to say, I don't need you to hold up within the walls of your church. I don't need you to hold up within the walls of your religion. What I need for you is to leave the walls of Jerusalem, go out into Samaria and into all of the world, and He's calling them to do this. And several years later, God has to use a murderer, Saul. God has to use persecution to literally push them out of the church so that they might be useful for his kingdom. And that brings us really to the present point 
and time. In light of all of that, does it start to become clear why he bothers to call upon us? Why he would call my name and say, follow me. We're made to be with him. It's his mission to restore us back to that place of being. He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants a relationship. He's not a distant God on an unapproachable throne. He's a living God who speaks and breathes and He heals and He makes us whole as the song we sang says. He, he brings wholeness to our life in every aspect. He, he sets us on stable ground. He brings stability to our mind. He brings stability to our spirit and healing to our bodies. He does all of these things not simply to heal us, but to draw us into a, a life of wholeness and reconciliation with Him. Because when we're truly in His presence and when we value Him, above the blessing that he brings and when we value him above the healing that we desire it's in that place that we find ourselves begin to be reconciled back to him and his spirit and his life and his holiness begins to flood our own and we begin to be transformed amen we talk about a lot of things in youth class uh, we talk a lot now more than we used to work some of our young people we talk a lot in youth class, Tim, you know, and when we talk, we've been lately bringing up discussions about, I think really there, there's a lot of questions and topics, but the core of it is what is, what is it to, to be a Christian, as simple as that sounds, and all of these things that we hear and all of these things that are our church culture, if you will, it, it teaches us, we we begin to ask the question, what does this mean for me? And one of the things we have discussed recently is the idea of different kinds of leadership. And this might sound like a leadership seminar type language, but we talked about the difference between a transactional leader and a transformational leader. And much to my pleasure, the young people, they quickly identified that Jesus was a transformational leader. Without much leading or guiding, they came to that conclusion. I simply asked, I said, I've told you what a transformational leader is. I've told you what a transactional leader is. What do you think Jesus was? Unanimously, he was a transformational leader. What that means, there's, there's meaning behind those words. A transactional leader is the type that, that gives good for good, bad for bad. Uh, your, your boss, your job, transformational leadership. You get that paycheck, not transfer, I'm sorry, transactional leadership. You get the paycheck for doing the job you're called to do. It is transactional. They'll replace you, <laughs> sorry to say. They'll replace me because they'll just transact with somebody else who will do the job. That's, that's not transformational. It's not really life-changing. It affects my life, sure. You, you need money to do things, but at the end of the day, that's a transaction. God is not a transactional God. God doesn't reward you for your good deeds and your good acts. He doesn't reward you for your, your life of faithfulness and righteousness. He doesn't somehow reward you because you prayed more than the person next to you or you read your Bible all the way through. He doesn't reward you for those things, but He uses those things to transform who you are. 
And so, yes, there's an expectation that we pray. And yes, there's an expectation that we fast and that we read the Word of God. But it's not that we might find some reward here on the earth. It's that we might be transformed and changed into something different. He uses this for that purpose. Amen? And so, transactional leadership is very different from transformational leadership. This invitation from the Master to follow me It's an invitation to be transformed and not simply a transaction of good for good, but to be changed, truly changed. And if you'll allow me to tell you another story, I I made a thing this week. I made a thing. I know that's descriptive. But I created a new thing, if you will. I found myself in my garage and I was just kind of looking at stuff. I don't know if you ever find yourself just looking at stuff in your garage. Can anyone relate? Where'd all this stuff come from? What am I going to do with it? <laughs> and I'm looking at stuff in my garage, and, and I look to the side, and I notice that there's these piles of old wood. Piles of old wood. They're all cut into little segments about, you know, 15 to 16 inches long. Piles of old wood, they've been forgotten about. They're just stored out of sight. They're piled against the far wall of the garage. And what what it is, is this is wood that's been reclaimed from many, many pallets. Thank you, Grayson. You're not forgotten. With this wood, this pile of wood, I looked at it and I realized there's these pieces in there. And (laughs) I know this isn't wood, but... This is the rough shape of, of what I was dealing with, a little bit longer perhaps. Imagine an old, gnarly piece of wood, roughly this size. And, and when you look at it, you realize these pieces of wood, they're dirty, they're misshapen, they're marked. There's an odd tire track here, a patch of dried mud there. This is all evidence of what this wood was used for in its former life, if you will, its former usage. And, and to see it now, it just sits against the wall and it's in a pile collecting cobwebs and dirt. And it's like this wood, it, it was reclaimed. It's reclaimed wood, right? It's already gone through a process where it's been drawn out of the world of pallets and reclaimed for some other usage, if you will. And yet it finds itself collecting dust in the corner. Has anyone been there? It's been reclaimed. Redeemed, if you will. I'll use that word. Redeemed wood, not reclaimed wood. And yet it collects dust and cobwebs. And so I looked down at that pile of wood and I thought, you know, I can make something out of that. (laughs) All that this wood has become is not all that it's ever going to be. It can be something else. I can make something out of that. By now you must realize that this little project of mine has become somewhat of a type and shadow of what it is to be called into a relationship with God. And it alludes to the spiritual transformation in the hands of the Master as He gently reclaims you and and begins to transform you into something new. You see, He reclaimed you at the point of redemption when He filled you with His Spirit. And if you haven't been filled with His Spirit, I urge you to seek the Holy Ghost. And when He does, it's a point of redemption. And He says, you 
I am now reclaiming you. I'm, I'm drawing you out of your former life, your former being. Whatever it is you used to be doesn't matter because I have a new purpose for you, he says. But just because you've reached that point of reclamation doesn't mean that you won't somehow find yourself piled in the corner collecting cobwebs if we do nothing with this reclamation and this redemption that we've been given. And so... Like the wood reclaimed for its former use, he reclaims you and me, and he fills us with his spirit. But we must recognize that this point of redemption is not an end goal. When we minister to people, we must recognize that filling them with the Holy Ghost and baptizing them in the water under the name of Jesus is not simply the end state, but rather it's a beautiful new beginning for a life that has now been reclaimed to Christ. And when you were filled with the Holy Ghost, it wasn't an end state, an end goal. It's, it's rather a means to a greater end that you might now be continually transformed by the love of God, that you might now be continually drawn closer to Him. And I think what I'm really talking about right now is holiness. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in what holiness is and the things we can do to, be, to, to act holy, to do holiness. But if we get the idea and we get the revelation that holiness is a state of being where God infills our lives and we somehow become more like Him, continually more like Him, we start to see a difference between how we might in our sinful human nature define holiness versus what God really intends for it to be. Amen? And so, I realized that this wood here, much like ourselves, we're not called to just sit and collect dust and collect cobwebs. Really, you're an object of immense value. I'm going to say that again. You are an object of immense value. You're invaluable. You're meant to be transformed and made into something new. And so, I began piecing through this pile of wood and and reclaiming the parts that I intended to use, I started to picture in my mind where each piece would fit, where each piece would join, where each piece would be used, fitly joined together, if you will. And I measured, and I joined angles to angles and pieces to pieces, and I ended up fashioning the base of what would become a table. And then after doing that, I fashioned piece after piece, and with each strike of the nail gun, another piece was fit into its place. Before my eyes, I began to see the formation of something new, something that I desired to create with my hands. And as it brought joy and anticipation to my heart as to what the final object would become, I can imagine that the master finds joy and anticipation in his heart when he looks at you and he thinks about what the final product is going to be when he's done transforming you and making you into something new. There is purpose in what he's doing in your life. It's process, however, it couldn't be completed without making a few cuts, removing a few ends and edges that weren't meant to be. As I ran the sandpaper rigorously along the side of this new tabletop that I was forming and, and stripping away the old ragged wood, if you will, that light on the edges, it began to take on a new look. These rough edges began to form into smooth lines. Something that you could touch and not get a splinter. Something that you could use. And if you accept His call to be made new, rest assured you're going to go through periods of removal 
And it's not comfortable to be cut on, I promise. It's not comfortable to be sanded and to be shaped into something different. But if you'll allow it, the Master has a purpose for you. And He needs to form you into His plan that He has for your life. This is a transformational God. Not a relationship of transaction, but it's one where He seeks to transform you into something new. On the contrary, a transactional view of God, it creates this environment in our mind where, if you will, He's holding this this elusive carrot in front of you. You know the illustration where the carrot's held in front of the subject and He continues on forward, ever reaching for this carrot that He's never going to obtain. That's a transactional view, and if we're not careful, we'll allow that falsehood to get into our mind. This kind of relationship, it produces what is called excarnational holiness. Another way of saying that is it keeps you thinking that you need to keep working harder to earn the love of God. You need to keep working harder to be considered holy by God. You have to pray more. You have to read more. You have to sacrifice more. You try to earn status with God. You try to get His attention as if you don't already have His attention because you, when you were formed, before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you, He says. You already have the attention of God. I promise you this. But when we try to purchase our way into heaven, this kind of holiness, if you will, it leads us to conclusions that would suggest that I'm not good enough and God's not hearing my prayers right now, or I'm not praying hard enough because there must be something wrong with me if my prayers haven't been answered. And if the Master, as if He would really turn His back on you and not hear the prayers that you pray, no, this Master is ever attentive to your every need. And His desire is to transform you. Nothing could be further from the truth than a transactional view of who God is. God is a God of transformation. And his desire is that we would be made new. This transformational view of God, it says that he's working on me still. It says that every day I wake up, there's a loving God and he's ordering my steps. He's ordering my steps. That simply implies that I haven't quite yet arrived where he wants me to be. Why else would he be ordering my steps still? Because he's trying to get me away from where I am and on to where he wants me to be. He's gently leading me and drawing me ever closer to Him. He's transforming my vision. He's transforming my perception. He's transforming the way I view the people around me. He's transforming the way I view relationships, neighbors, co-workers. He's transforming the way I view fellow students. He's transforming the way I view the souls that abide in the same area as myself. And He's transforming my desires for what He wants to do with those people. To your left and to your right, there are people who he's called just as much as he's called you. And his desire is to draw them as close as he wants to draw you. And so, could it be that this answering the call to follow me causes us to echo the call, follow me? I'm talking about discipleship. (laughs) If I'm truly transformed by God, and I'm truly being made like him, would it stand to reason that I would begin to echo his very heartbeat? Would it stand to reason that you would begin to echo his very words? And like he said, follow me, you begin to say, follow me. (laughs) I know a God, follow me. I know someone who can provide healing. I'll lead you to him, follow me. 
I know a place where you can be transformed and changed by the love of God. I can't do it, but I can lead you to the master. Follow me and I'll take you there because I'm headed there myself. I'm not quite there yet, but if you would just follow in the steps that I'm endeavoring to take, we might make it together. Amen? Amen. We might make it together. And when you view submission as a web, in a sense, we submit one to another. I submit to you, you submit to me, and we all submit to Christ. We might make it together but I need you and you need each other amen and so he transforms my desire to line up with his own desires he transforms my heartbeat to echo his own heartbeat in this kind of relationship it creates what we call incarnational holiness Contrary to the excarnational holiness that says, I must do, I must do, I must do. Incarnational holiness says, I must be more like Christ. I must be transformed by his love. I must be changed when I find myself in his presence. Whenever the altar is open and I have the opportunity to kneel before him and submit my will to his, I must take that opportunity and allow him to change what parts of me that he desires to change and allow him to cut away the parts of me that he desires to be removed from my life and allow him to add to me the burdens that he desires for me to carry. This incarnational holiness, it makes me a little bit more like him each time I'm in his presence. And it makes you a little bit more like him each time you're in his presence for the end result that one day you might dwell with him. Amen? That is holiness, to be changed. And we commonly speak the language of being drawn out of the world. And, and while it's true, the drawing out of the world isn't for a purpose that we would remain forever isolated and separated. It's so that we would be changed and transformed and sent back to that very same place that He found us. That we might echo His call and say, follow me. Follow me. I'm coming to a close it's kind of holiness that leads us to joyfully respond to the invitation, not begrudgingly. It leads us to joyfully respond to the opportunity and the opportunities that he places before us, not dutifully and begrudgingly perform some act of ministry or perform some act of holiness or perform some act of worship against our will. It, it takes us to a place where it becomes joyful to lift our hands before the Lord. It takes us to a place where it becomes joyful to share the truth of His Word. It takes us to a place where we receive joy and we receive satisfaction knowing that we're being used by Him in maybe some small way, but used nonetheless, where we know we've been shaped and transformed, where He promises you, as He promised me, He, he of all of the things that I know God has spoken in my life, one thing certainly stands above many of the others. And this is for me. I'm sharing with you a bit of myself at the moment. And the constant promise, if you will, that God has spoken to me. And it's simple. It's not overly complex. It's not some new doctrine or theory. I'm not going to blow your minds with this, but it was probably 10 years ago, I believe, and when I first became aware of this promise because I doubt that that was the beginning of the promise. I suspect the promise was there before I was born, but 
I attuned myself into this promise probably some decade ago. And, and of all of the things I remember God speaking and all of His words and every time He's ministered to me, the one thing that continues to remain unchanged is He says, I'm going to change you. And you're not going to be the same man tomorrow that you were yesterday. I'm going to work on you. And you're not going to be the same man today that you were yesterday. Tomorrow you'll be changed and you'll be new. And the next day you're going to be changed and you're going to be new. I'm going to keep working on you. This is his promise to me. I suspect he's promised similar things to you. And if you haven't heard that promise, if you haven't embodied that promise, I encourage you, as we're coming to a close here, I would encourage you to signal to God by stepping forward out of your pew and into this altar area. This isn't, it's not that we're somehow more holy up here at the altar. No, by stepping out, you're signaling to your God. You're saying, I, I don't really understand all of it, but by stepping out right now, I I'm just saying, well, I'm taking a step forward and I'm going to see where this takes me. I don't know what tomorrow brings. I don't know what he has for me next year. This, this, you might not see the immediate future. You might not see the long-term future. You, you might not see what some others see in you in the ministry that you have. I believe that God has given pastor eyes after his own heart, when he looks at people, he sees what God might use you for. And when he looks at me, he's, when he looked at me many years ago, he saw not who I was. I was just some airman in the military who probably wasn't super useful for anything. But when Pastor looked at me, I believe he looked with eyes of transformation. He looked with eyes of the Spirit. As a praying man, a man called to shepherd, a man called to bring up people in the body of Christ, a man called to, to make leaders and make disciples who want to make disciples. That's, I believe, the calling on the heart of a pastor. And so when he saw me, he perhaps saw me with the eyes that God saw me with, and he said, you know, that Josh guy, I might be able to make something out of him. I might be able to use him. God might be able to use him. And so we have this opportunity to preach and to speak and to teach and but it's, we weren't born with this opportunity. We've been transformed. And the only way you're going to be transformed is if you are obedient and accepting of the call to be transformed. It's not withheld from anybody. It's desire that God has to take somebody and make something new. It's, it's not withheld. I promise you. It's for you. As much as it's for me, it's for the guy next to you and the lady next to you, as much as it's for you. But there's a peace that requires us to take action. And we might not fully understand the depth of the action, but when we simply step forward, we're ad identifying with God and we're saying, you know, whatever, whatever it is that you have next for me, I'm just going to move towards you. And so I ask you now, if you would come to this altar, if you, if you have a desire to identify with anything that was said this morning, if you have the desire to 
to somehow just be a little bit different, to somehow just be a little bit changed, if you have the desire to somehow just be a little bit transformed and and a little bit closer to God and a little bit closer to His cross and a little bit closer to His promises, perhaps the easiest, perhaps the simplest thing you can do is to just simply step forward and start to speak to Him. Just talk to Him now. Tell Him, Lord, acknowledge, I believe you're working on me still. Acknowledge that where I am today is not my end state. And everything that I am is not everything that I will ever be. And accept and say, Lord, Jesus, God, whatever it is you call Him, I'm accepting your call to be changed and to be transformed. I'm accepting it right now. And I trust that you're going to lead me to new places and you're going to make something new out of me. And I'm not going to be captive to my former self. And I'm not going to be bound to my former self and my former habits and my former life and whatever pains and whatever scars, whatever marks might follow me through the things and the places and where I've been. I'm not, I'm not defined by those things and what I used to be. No, I'm defined by the holiness that you desire to place inside of me, Jesus. I am defined by your word. I am defined by you, Jesus, and your love and, and the transformation that comes with it. That's what defines me today. That's what defines who you are today. If you'll allow him, if you'll allow him to just change what he needs to change, let's worship him together now.